Welcome to the ASC podcast, Cytopath Pod. Join special guests to highlight ASC activities in cytopathology education, advocacy, and research. Hi everyone, I'm Liron Pantanowitz and I'm happy to be moderating uh, today's podcast uh, for the American Society of Cytopathology. We have chosen a superb article that was published in the Journal of American Society of Cytopathology, published in May, June this year, volume 11, issue 3, uh, written by Ewan McAlpine and um, co-authors, and I will introduce you to them, and uh, we have a stimulating discussion lined up. Uh, the title of the article is, Is it real or not? Toward artificial intelligence-based realistic synthetic cytology image generation to augment teaching and quality assurance in pathology. So that was a real mouthful uh, because uh, it's a really interesting and, uh, you know, uh, article that really is addressing the emerging era of artificial intelligence. And um, so... Welcome to our co-authors, Ewan, Pam, and Turgai. And uh, the first question I have is uh, to Ewan. Ewan, could you introduce yourself to um, the members of the ASE that are listening to this podcast and uh, tell us a little bit about uh, yourself, uh, who you are, and how you came about assembling this team of co-authors on this interesting article? Oh, yes. Um, thanks for inviting us. It's, uh, it's much appreciated. Um, so as a brief introduction, um, I am Ewan McAlpine. I'm a, I'm a pathologist um, at the moment in private practice. When I wrote the article and did the research, I was working um, in the state sector, but at the moment I'm in private practice. I also have an honorary appointment with the University of the Witwatersrand. Um, my, my team comprises um, Pamela Michaelow, who I'm sure everyone in the cytology world is 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 quite aware of. She's um, a very well-published um, cytologist. Um, Eric Liebenberg, who is our department's IT coordinator, essentially he was my right-hand man on this project, um, testing various um, parameters with, with, the, with these networks to try and get the best results. And then finally, uh, Turge Celik, who's um, from the um, School of Electrical Information Engineering and the Witz Institute of Data Science. Um, and he, he's an expert in machine learning, which is, which is why he's included in, um, in this project. Perfect. So just to reiterate to everyone, you will notice that Ewan has a South African accent, as do I, and you'll find out so will the other co-authors. And so our, our co-authors uh, come from uh, the University of Witwatersrand, also known as Witz in South Africa. So you and um, you know, not too many cytopathologists uh, may uh, read this paper and and uh, you know appreciate all the details and uh, exactly uh, what you were able to accomplish. So if I could ask you, can you just briefly explain this paper to us? Because uh, everyone's super excited about artificial intelligence. It's a hot topic. We see it's happening in cytology. And so it's important that we understand, uh, you know, this particular field. So can you summarize for your cytology audience uh, what was that you uh, were able to accomplish through this publication? 
Um, so I think the first important thing that we need to say about this article is a lot of the research that's going on at the moment in pathology is into what's called supervised learning, which I'm sure a lot of people are aware of. But basically, that, that would be, for example, classification tasks, um, you know, essentially training an algorithm to identify malignant cells or atypical cells, etc. And this article is actually uh, different. It uses what's called unsupervised learning. So what, we, what we're using is um, a type of network called the generative adversarial network to generate fully synthetic images. In other words, images that didn't exist um, in, in reality, they've, they've been generated by a network. And the reason we've done that is uh, in South Africa, um, our urine cytology specimens, um, our malignant urine cytology specimens comprise mostly squamous cell carcinomas from the cervix. So that results in our trainees um, having very limited exposure to urothelial neoplasia on, on urine cytology. So what we, what we did is we, is we used this, um, this technology of, of generative models, specifically uh, generative adversarial networks, to, to bridge that gap, basically, and to generate malignant urothelial images um, as, a, as an illustration of how this technology could be used for uh, teaching, training, quality assurance um, in, in cytology. All right, that makes a lot of sense. Thank you for that summary. So probably for most cytology practices, PAP tests are uh, a high volume specimen. And if you look at the literature on artificial intelligence devoted to cytology, most of the publications, either in the pathology literature or even in the engineering or other literature, uh, relates to AI and PAP tests. Uh, but you chose urine, which seems to be, you know, the next area that people are tackling. So you also mentioned that urine is not a common specimen for malignancy in South Africa. Um, is, so is that, I just want to make sure I understand, is that why uh, you and your co-authors chose urine to tackle. Uh, so what's the reason for urine over PAP tests, for example? Yeah, so specifically we chose, we chose a specimen type that, um, that our trainees don't get exposed to. So in, in the state sector, urothelial neoplasia on urine cytology is, is quite rare. I think it's probably about 20% of our workload. Whereas in the, in the private sector, it is a, it is a greater um, percentage. And so we essentially wanted to see if we could use this technology to, to bridge that gap and to, to expose or to, to be able to generate synthetic examples to, to expose our, our trainees to. Um, that's why we chose urine cytology. I mean, obviously in terms of um, cervical cytology, we certainly don't have a shortage of, 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 um, of malignant examples there. Got it, okay. Makes sense. And I'm hoping that this could be extrapolated to any cytology specimen. So non-gynecological, it doesn't matter if it's an FNA or thyroid and so forth, probably is applicable. I think I think certainly that that's that's the hope is that we could use this to generate large synthetic training sets of of various specimen types, including histology, not, not just cytology. And right. hopefully in the future we could even um, use this technology to to translate between cytology and histology. Um, th this technology does lend itself to be, be able to essentially generate histology images or cytology images from, 
from the opposite. Um, it, it, is, it is possible to look at doing that. Got it. So I just want to ask a technical question because, uh, you know, the readers will be trying to grapple with what the technology is that you had uh, dealt with when you uh, did this work. And you talk about these GANs, G-A-Ns. Um, maybe you can elaborate. What is a GAN for, you know, folks who don't know this? And uh, like, why did you choose to do the GANs for your particular AI training and for your project? So, so just briefly, what, what, what a GANS is, so it stands for Generative Adversarial Networks. And essentially what it is, is you've got two networks that train in tandem. So you've got a generator and a discriminator. The generator network um, takes essentially random noise and it learns to generate the, the, the synthetic data that you, you're training it on. While the discriminator um, tr attempts to learn how to discriminate between real and synthetic images. In other words, it tries to, it tries to detect the fake, the fake images. And you essentially train the two in tandem and feed um, the, the error of, of the discriminator back to the, the generator. And in that way, you, you train the generator to generate better and better uh, quality images. Um, the reason we used it for this is that while there are other options for, for generative models, for generating image data, GANs are by far the best uh, choice. Um, since their inception in, in 2014, um, you know, great progress has been made in making realistic images. The first images that were generated were, were good, but they, they certainly weren't all that realistic. And as time has gone by, um, GANs generate far more realistic images than, than any other uh, generative model would be able to. So that's the reason we, we chose GANs. In this article, we, specific, we chose a specific type of, of GANs, which is called StyleGAN3. And the reason we did that is because um, StyleGAN3 is able to train on a small data set, which is, which is very important. Um, Cyto, Cyto data sets aren't easy to come by. Um, labeling cytology images is certainly laborious. Um, those of us who've done it can attest to that. And you can't, you can't generate data sets of several hundred thousand or several million images. So you have to work with, with much smaller data sets. And the, the StyleGAN2 and the StyleGAN3 networks lend themselves particularly well to, to, um, to, to using those small data sets. Okay, that makes sense. Um, I'm going to stick with another technical question, and then we'll get away to get away from those technical questions. And then in the end, I'm going to ask you to look into your crystal ball. But so the other technical question I have is uh, in your paper, if I was following your methods, you talk about these 20 clusters, it means you added clustering into your study. Uh, why did you do this as a pre-processing step? Uh, could, could you not avoid it? Or uh, what's the rationale? So, so the rationale was that we started with a data set of 3,000 images, uh, malignant urine cytology images. And um, the data set was essentially unbalanced when you looked at, at the, the kind of morphological diversity of that data set. So in other words, things like, um, you know, images with a clean background versus a bloody background, um, staining patterns, uh, individual malignant cells versus clusters of malignant cells, images with benign elements, images without benign elements. 
And essentially what we did is we, we used clustering to um, group similar images together so that we could then select uh, an even number of images from each cluster and essentially balance the data set morphologically um, in the hopes that we would then uh, get the, the GANs to, to generate uh, a large diversity of images rather than, than, than just the most common type of, of, of image. And that, that's, that's principally the, the reason why we included clustering. Okay, got it. Thank you for the explanation. So one of the things that I've often grappled with in the in this world of trying to you know validate AI and build AI algorithms is uh, how large does an ideal data set really need to be if you're training an AI algorithm? I was told by computer scientists that you need 10,000 images, but I noticed in your article you used 26 malignant cases. Is that because the synthetic images you had was good enough to augment your training data set? So um, essentially, the number of images you need to train an algorithm is, is, is variable. I mean, obviously, the more data you have, the better. I think what's more important is the quality of your data. So in other words, is it representative of real-world data? Has it been correctly labeled, um, et cetera? So I think um, you know, if you're training a supervised algorithm, you probably want a huge number of images. 10,000 images is probably, is probably good. Um, what we used is we actually used 3,000 images uh, derived from 26 um, malignant slides, in other words, 26 whole slide images. So we had initially 3,000 images, and then obviously we clustered them down to, to 1,000 images. Um, the, the important thing with, with the StyleGAN 2 and StyleGAN 3 models is that it, it's able to use uh, data augmentation, specifically discriminator augmentation, to, to make up for, for, for the small data set. Um, which is, you know, obviously data augmentation is commonly used in, in, in machine learning. It's not used in, in GANs per se, because um, if you augment the data, your generator is essentially learns how to generate the augmented data set, which is not ideal. Um, you know, specifically, if you're if you, um, creating things like faces, which is the famous thing that, that GANs do in, in, in literature, is you can't have the GANs um, producing upside down faces, for example. So it's not, it's not all that relevant to cytology. Obviously, the orientation is, isn't important. But the, 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 the StyleGAN 2 and 3 architectures specifically augment the discriminator only, um, which then allows you to get away with, with small, small data sets uh, while the discriminator, while the generator doesn't learn how to generate that, that augmented data set. So, um, that's why I think this the StyleGAN three model is particularly well suited to to, to cytology and, and uh, histology. Okay, so I, in my reading and uh, following what people have been doing, and, and during the COVID era, there've been literally thousands of AI projects to try and solve many of the issues uh, along the COVID pandemic. Um, my understanding is that the synthetic data sets that were created, and some people call these Frankenstein data sets that um, while they're, they're great uh, for training purposes, um, that if you develop an AI algorithm with synthetic data, one of the downsides may be that it doesn't perform that well in the real world. I don't know. What's your opinion about um, so, um, so I think uh, I've got two responses. Number one, 
what we were trying to do is not is not generate synthetic data that would then be used to train a supervised algorithm. We were specifically trying to create synthetic data to to teach humans on, um, which is what I think I think we I think we did achieve that. Um, in terms of of whether or not synthetic data is is, is a good idea um, to augment data sets, I think the literature certainly um, has shown that it's been used in in histology quite successfully. Certainly in terms of things like stain normalization or data set, uh, data set balancing, et cetera. I think it has been used quite successfully there. Whether, whether those algorithms will generalize to a real world setting is a different story. I mean, obviously they perform well on a test set, but in terms of, of real world, I suppose that, that, that remains to be seen. Um, but I think, I think the important thing is that if, if your synthetic data set is representative, um, of the morphology that you're trying to train the algorithm on, I, I, I don't see why it wouldn't um, certainly improve the training. Um, you know, to to what degree it improves it is is is, a, is another question. But I think I think it has been used in the past, and I think it has been used successfully. If I could just come in, I think it's one of the problems of um, a, a sort of pathology and or digital pathology is that it's still so new that most of the studies have been done on existing existing specimens and it's I don't know of any study that's being done on in sort of real 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 life um, so I think we we still in the early stages and we still need to know how these algorithms will perform not on training sets but in a real in a real laboratory. I agree with you. I think we're missing the outcomes piece to see, you know, you know how they perform. A lot of people want to know if it's cost effective. Will you save money? Uh, can you replace pathologists? Uh, but yeah, you're right, Pam. We need more labs to use it and provide feedback over time if um, they are successful. So I looked at your, the, the, the images that you had in your article, and to be honest, I, I sometimes couldn't tell the difference between a real image and a synthetic image. Um, unless, for example, uh, you and when you put an obvious artifact there to show us like repetitive cells, um, and, and you, all of you obviously looked at large numbers of images. In your opinion, can a synthetic image be as good as the real thing? Um, and uh, can you sometimes not tell the difference, especially if there are no artifacts? So I, th I think most of the time you can't tell the difference. Um, it, 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 this, this technology is obviously still, still new and I think um, you can't expect it to be perfect. So you still have to curate the, the synthetic images. You still have to look at them manually and check which ones you think are acceptable. Um, but the, the majority of the images that we generated were, were indistinguishable um, from, from real images. Uh, I, so I, I, think, um, I think it's extremely difficult to tell the difference. Obviously, um, you know, a lot, a lot of GANS-related articles test this with, the, with the, a Turing test, which we haven't done to date. But um, just just from from our observation, it's not possible to tell the difference. Um, usually, I mean, obviously, I did include examples where it's quite obvious that, that the images are are, are are synthetic. But um, on the whole, I don't think you can tell the yeah, I don't think you can tell the difference. 
Uh, yeah, I couldn't tell from the publication, you know, which articles sometimes were real and synthetic unless I read your figure legend and you told me. Um, you know, I see this, uh, as you point out, the application in your publication is if you have limited specimens and you need to create a teaching sets for training, for proficiency tests, uh, textbooks, uh, you need to, um, you know, create board exams. Um do you think this would suffice? Would you be, so if you've perfected this, would you be willing to provide the, the images for board purposes or proficiency purposes in the, in the future? Yeah, I certainly, I certainly do think that's where this technology is going. Um, I think certainly for board exams, it can be quite difficult to, to find good examples of, of, of cases. And um the, the interesting thing is that the, the predecessor to StyleGAN 3, so StyleGAN 2, allowed you to mix um, styles. So in other words, you could, you, could, um, you could mix different images together to produce um, uh, kind of a hybrid synthetic image. And that really, that really does lend itself to, um, to use for, for teaching, training, and, and examination. You, know, you, could, you could take a good example and add a bloody background, for example, you could, um, you know, you, you could change the image. I mean, obviously, it's done slightly randomly, but it, but it does allow you to do that. In fact, that's Ewan's next project. Um, he's going to show a, a group of experienced cytopathologists the images, uh, and uh, they'll have to decide whether they're real or synthetic. Um, so that's his next project. So, so watch the space, everyone. <laughs> okay, excellent, excellent. I assume that uh, your team's going to be picking curated images, right, without artifacts like the repetitive ones and some of the obvious artifacts you've shown. So you'll curate them and make it challenging. Yeah, no, so we, we certainly have, we've selected um, what we regard as, as diagnostic images from both the real and synthetic data sets to, to test. Um, you know, we, we're quite open about the fact that you have to curate the, the synthetic data set. Um, so, you know, you can't just randomly choose. But I think, I think um, you know, I think, I think this technology still works, um, even if you have got artifacts sometimes. Okay. We will definitely watch this space, uh, Pam. Uh, Ewan, in your paper, you mentioned that you had to downsize your images to 256 by 256 pixels, uh, mostly because you were, you had limited computer resources. And and maybe you can share with the audience here, um, and, and all of you maybe can, because I know Pam's working on, on other AI projects and Turgai, you know, in your engineering field that you also are working in this area. Maybe you can share a little bit about the struggle you have uh, in South Africa, trying to get the resources to do this kind of work, artificial intelligence, you know, which is cutting edge in, in any country. So how, how do you accomplish this um, when you don't have, you know, all the resources to do this work? So um, I think it's important to remember that we, we face all of the same challenges everybody else in the world faces um, in terms of doing AI research. Number one, we, we need data sets. Um, number two, we need people to label those data sets. And number three, we need people who aren't um, overburdened with diagnostic workload to, to, to conduct the research. 
but I think specifically a couple of things that 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 um, that we face in South Africa, which um, might not be um, experienced by people in a first world, is we we do struggle with computing resources. So we ran this project on a single 12 gigabyte um, GPU, where you probably need several, um, at least 24 gig GPUs to to do this on a on a large scale. Um, but all we had access to at the time was was a, a 12 gig GPU. We have since um, received a grant which which has allowed us to get a, a 24 gig GPU, which is which is great. But the the other problem we face, um, which which is I suppose semi unique to us at the moment, is um, and Pam will bear me out. The biggest challenge of of this project so far has been our unstable electricity grid. We we experience um, rolling blackouts quite commonly. And for training these algorithms, that, that is a bit of a disaster. You know, these algorithms take days to weeks to train. And when you don't have, we you know when, when, your, when your computer switches off halfway through the training process, it's, it's not ideal. Um, so the, 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 major, the major problem we faced with this, or the two major problems we faced with this project are the, the the lack of computing resources, and then when we do have the computing resources, the the lack of electricity sometimes to to power them. All right. Well, I'm I'm hoping that your article will be an inspiration for others from uh, low middle income countries and elsewhere in Africa. That um, you know, if you can achieve it with rolling blackouts and limited computing resources and so forth, that um, others can follow suit. So I hope that happens. Um, you and your paper, you know, demonstrates a cool application and, and all the great things you can do with it. But I'm glad that you also provided a little bit of a warning and a caution for people, you know, to, you know, not misuse the, the technology. And you point out that, you know, once you have synthetic healthcare data, there are legal and ethical issues. Um, did that keep you up at night? And, you know, uh, what do you, you think about that? Like, what do you advise the Scientology community that we should not be doing with synthetic data if we create it? So I think, I think um, as with all technology, um, you've got to be cautious with how you use the technology. And I think for you, using it for legitimate means such as training, teaching, um, board exams, etc., I think is you know when you open when you open about the fact that you're using synthetic data, I think I think you're probably quite safe. I think I think if you're planning on using this technology for nefarious means, and it certainly can be, um, you know you can you can generate completely fake data um, if you know to use for nefarious means if you want. But I think I think that goes with every technology. To be honest, um, I, I have advised in my article that. Until such time as legislation catches up, um, you know, because legislation at the moment doesn't really address the use of synthetic data. And I think until it does, I think I think we should be bound by um, ethics board ethics boards essentially making decisions that, and checking that we are that we are using this technology correctly. I think I think we should be careful about bypassing ethics simply because. We, we think it's synthetic data, it doesn't come from patients. Um, I think the reality is that 
that we, we, we do need to be careful. We still need to, to practice ethically. All right, I definitely do think we need guidelines um, and hopefully the American Society of Cytopathology will participate in providing guidelines for, um, for the cytology community. Um, I've enjoyed the podcast, but I'm going to ask you my final question for all, all the co-authors, which is I'm going to have you look into your crystal ball for us and to please tell us what you think uh, or how soon do you think cytology labs, both yours in South Africa and ours here in the US and other folks around the world, uh, you know, do you think we will really use AI algorithms for diagnostic work? Um, you know, you're helping advance the field. So, um, you know, what does your crystal ball tell us? So my, 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 I certainly hope that we will use this technology. Um, in, in a routine diagnostic setting. I think my gut feel is that it's not, it's not all that far off, certainly for us to start provisionally using it under supervision, um, at least to test its, its real world um, accuracy. I think um, what's gonna happen is, I think, I think exfoliates of cytology will probably be um, the first, um, you know, the, the, the leader in this field. Um, but I think, I think it's not all that far off. I, I, I hope that within the next five years, we, we are using it um, diagnostically. All right. Well, if I have my way, I certainly will go for it. Um, Pam, Turgai, um, did you want to uh, share any uh, parting messages to the audience listening to you? Um, I, I just, my, I sort of, my view of the future is that I think it's going to be like everything else. There are going to be countries that have digital pathology or centers that have it and then centers that don't. Um, you know, it might be cost effective in the long run, but I think the initial outlay for digital pathology is quite, is, is very expensive. And I think it's going to be prohibitive for a lot of countries. So I think, I think unfortunately, we're just going to move in the same direction as um, some countries will have it and some centers due to financial constraints and due to um, sort of lack of, te of technologies to support the infrastructure, unfortunately, just, just won't. All right. Well, I hope that everyone benefits from the technology because the goal is ultimately the patients that we take care of and, you know, um, to improve patient care around the world. Um, all right. Um, well, I think that concludes our podcast. I hope everyone enjoyed it. Um, if anyone has questions, uh, please look up the article. Uh, you should be able to correspond with you. And he uh, has left his corresponding uh, contact information. If not, contact the ASC or please contact me and I will get you in touch uh, with them. So thank you so much. You and Pam and Turgai for participating in this podcast. Uh, I hope I didn't stress you out with these challenging questions, but we learned a lot from you. Thank you for your contribution to the Journal of the ASC uh, and advancing the field of cytology along with um, computational pathology. Thank, thanks for inviting thanks. us. It was great to be on. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Cytopath Pod. You can reach ASC on Twitter at 
cytopathology or via email at asc at cytopathology.org.